inspiring and advancing Stoics to another episode of Meet the Modern Stoics. This is where today's leading Stoic advocates share ancient wisdom that you can apply for better living today. I'm your host, Scott Perry, creator of thestoicguitarist.com. Get guided and go Stoic. Adopt the posture of a bulletproof creative, the mindset of a thriving artist, and deliver better work to the right people. Remember that Stoicism is a philosophy of action, not navel-gazing. Listen to the wisdom delivered in this episode, and then apply it to your life, your work, and relationships today. Let's meet today's guest. Our guest today is Larry Becker. Larry, welcome to the broadcast. Please take a second to introduce yourself to our audience and share whatever Stoic-related project you're currently working on or most excited about. Uh, thank you, Scott. Um, I'm Larry Becker. I'm a philosopher. I write under a more formal name, Lawrence C. Becker. Um, and I'm the author of a book called A New Stoicism. Um, and I guess my, uh, my, my work is mostly in ethics, social and political philosophy. Um, and I'm retired now um, from formal teaching, but I'm still writing. And the current project is a new edition of the Stoicism book, which is coming out uh, Early September, uh, Princeton University Press says. And some people say it's available uh, for pre-order on Amazon. Uh, we're not sure about that, Scott. Scott can't find it. I thought I did, but uh, in any case, um, that's what's exciting uh, to me because um, I wanted to clarify a couple of things. It's, it makes the same argument that the first book did. Most of the words are the same. Uh, there's a new preface that brings up uh, to date the commentaries. Uh, tons of work has come out in scholarly uh, circles and in um, uh, practical applications. Uh, you heard some of that from Chris Gill and from Massimo Pinucci. Uh, and the scholarly work is, is uh, seemingly endless as, as well. Uh, so I wanted to update the commentaries in my book um, with respect to that. I wanted to clarify the relationship between Stoic agency Stoic virtue and Stoic happiness. Uh, so I rewrote the first section of chapter six and did a couple of other things. And some people had uh, said it was odd that there hadn't, there wasn't a, a um, section on suicide in the first edition. So. I put in a section on uh, a good life uh, because that's where suicide comes up. And so that's in the 
chapter seven and uh, so on. Uh, people who are looking for a, a sort of softened up version of the, uh, of the first edition will be disappointed, I think. So, uh, partly because my interest has always been in the theory and not so much the practice. So that's my answer to your first question. <laughs> well, and I already have I already have questions to ask based on on just that little uh, thumbnail sketch of the revised edition. Your book, uh, A New Stoicism, came out in I believe 1999, and therefore it's really placed at the beginning of the current rise of what we can call modern stoicism or yeah, 1998 i think yeah okay um and i mean i know that um many of my friends credit you as really beginning this whole uh mm -hmm. kind of modern uh modern modern stoicism uh movement but you obviously uh, were taking a very kind of uh disciplined approach to the ancient philosophical uh practices and discipline um, so I wondered if you would maybe um, speak to where you see yourself in, in you know, in, in the, the, the arc of modern Stoicism. And then, um, you know, the other is, uh, you, you're, you mentioned that you're interested in, 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 in ethics. And I think one of the things that your book talks about is what could have, what would have happened if we had had, if Stoicism hadn't been interrupted. Yes. Um, by Christianity or whoever you want to blame, um, well, everybody, and, <laughs> and and had continued, you know, would the state of society and politics and maybe even economics be different today? Well, uh, yes, my interest. Uh, let me put it. Um, go back a minute. Uh, I think I came to have a philosophical interest in Stoicism, kind of by a long way around. Um, I, I loved Epictetus. I encountered Epictetus first in college and thought, there must be more to this. But I didn't know that there was a whole systematic philosophy behind it. Uh, that part is what died uh, after 500 years. It had a pretty good run. Um, but the ethics, as you know, and, and the sort of advice for living well, uh, continued uh, in a kind of subterranean way. Uh, I don't think Epictetus's contributions have ever been out, out of print. Um, and the reason is that a lot of that practical advice is what my people in Midwestern US in the 40s and 50s when I was growing up, uh, just thought of it as common sense. <laughs> I mean, I, I grew up in a parsonage, a Calvinist parsonage. Uh, and everybody I knew uh, would have just said, well, that makes sense, of course. That's... Don't cry over spilled milk. Don't set your hope. Don't, don't base your life 
on getting everything you want, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, Interesting. My, my wife is from the Midwest and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and I have a lot of experience visiting out there and um, there is something, there is a different kind of mindset and dynamic and decency yeah. to people there that definitely stoicism embraces. And of course, as a Calvinist, I guess um, you, you did not have any issues with the pre, predeterminism and, and providence that offered by well, I, I Certainly Calvin himself um, was very interested in that. And, and Calvin exists in a, in a world in which neo-Stoicism uh, had gone in. But that was a, an attempt to Christianize Sto- Stoicism. Uh, and so, you know, I say in the first edition that, that I was teaching a course in, uh, on the concept of a good life. And my students at William Mary at that time said to me after the, one of the iterations of this course, uh, you know, um, why don't you not write a book on the good life? Why don't you just write a book on the Stoics? Because you are a Stoic. And I didn't think I could claim to be one unless I had the theory. So that's how the question of the first book, the first edition comes up. What would Stoic ethics be like today, if anything, if Stoicism had had a continuous history? Because philosophy has changed dramatically. When the Stoics were writing, there wasn't a sharp distinction between science, what we call empirical science, and philosophy. and all sorts of questions, for instance, about God and the providence of God uh, have changed. I mean, the ancient Stoics had some arguments for the existence of such providence, but by modern standards, they're just no good, by, at least in the fragments we have. Um, so I put this off until the early 90s, and partly because I'm not a classically trained scholar. My training is in uh, Anglo-American ethics and ethical theory and so on, and philosophy generally. But in the mid-80s, a big book by Long and Sedley, called The Hellenistic Philosophers, came out in two volumes. First volume was their translations and commentary on virtually all the fragments and testimony that are still extant. And volume two of the original manuscript uh, in Greek and Latin. But until that time, the only similar collection of fragments was in Latin, as done by and Greek, done by a German scholar, and even the introduction to that book by the author, the editor, is in Latin. <laughs> well, I can read Latin sort of 
with a dictionary, but I didn't do it. Long and Sedley came out, it was Revelation, Brad Inwood's work in the 80s on fun, uh, primal impulses and the difference between goal versus target in um, Stoicism. It was very important. And then two big books, one by Julia Annis called The Morality of Happiness and one by Martha Nussbaum called The Therapy of Desire. First one came out in 93, second one in 94. Then that's when I was teaching my good life course and so on. The other thing is I've always been interested in virtue ethics. I wrote a book called Reciprocity in the 80s. And I was dissatisfied with its account of virtue. And then through Long and Sedley and other work, I discovered oikiosis and the Stoic developmental account of the virtues. So I was off and running and that's, but that's why the book is not what you might call an easy read. Because what it tries to do is to say, look, even if a lot had changed in Stoicism over the centuries, the imaginary Stoicism, we could still defend all these really severe ethical demands, it seems to make. They'd have to be reformulated somewhat. We'd still have an ethical theory, and one that goes all the way to the ground. Let's, um, you, there, you, you mentioned several things mm-hmm. that I want to just kind of stick a pin in. The first is um, that you're your training was not necessarily in Hellenistic philosophy. And, um, but as, a, as an academic, and we've had several others on the broadcast already and several more coming up, I, I get myself in a little bit of hot water because at one point in a, in a podcast where I was a guest, I, I was actually talking about jazz music. Um, but I said, uh, and somebody was asking me about people going to school to learn how to play jazz guitar or trumpet or whatever. And I said, well, um, I feel like university is where the arts go to die. And my justification was classical music gets, you know, put into the academy. It immediately stops being a popular music. Jazz gets put into, you know, institutions. And it now is below classical music in terms of popularity in the United States. Um, and philosophy, which historically has, and from a, at least a Hellenistic point of view, was really just what the, the art of living, the, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be happy? And how can you become more both? Um, you know, that gets uh, turned into um, kind of a, a navel-gazing discipline only for people that, um, you know, can understand each other's uh, multi-syllabic words. Um, I wouldn't mind if you spoke to that, but I also would love to, just to stick another pin, um, you... Uh, you've talked about why you wanted to write a book about stoicism. Um, I just, I I wonder if you would be interested in just unpacking a little bit of why 
what did Stoicism get right that so many other ancient philosophies did not that allow Stoicism to still not, it persisted even as it was kind of left uh, behind by Christianity and, and other religious and philosophical uh, pursuits, but it persisted all the way to today. And it's cited as being something that, you know, George Washington kept a copy, Thomas Jefferson, uh, you know, we have modern examples like Admiral Scottdale. Um, and then if we have time, I'd love to get to the goal versus target um, uh, point that you made, but I'll, I'll let you speak to one of those first two points first. Well, um, fair enough. Um, philosophy has become um, more like Aristotle and less like Plato and certainly the Roman Stoics. That is, it's technical. Chrysippus, of whom we have nothing directly, although he wrote like 500 books, uh, was evidently a real technical philosopher in the modern sense. The Stoics in the ancient world were criticized for being too uh, fond of invented language and so on. Uh, the Roman Stoics weren't interested in that so much. They were more interested in the practical advice, but the Stoics were always interested in that. And Aristotle was too, in the eyes. And that's always going to be more accessible. Uh, what makes Stoicism so immediately accessible, I think, is what's now called the dichotomy of control. First paragraph in Epic Epictetus' manual. Some things are within our control and some things aren't. And their account of the emotions, that is the cognitive account of the emotions, Aristotle had that too, but and their way of explaining why emotions are under our control in a way that external events aren't, right? And sometimes we think that our emotions aren't under our control, but uh, we'll, we'll hear, hear from um, Ms. Ellis uh, about that. Uh, so, I, I think Stoicism survived in a, not as a coherent systematic philosophy, but certainly as a practical philosophy. And in some ways, do you feel like it, it, it's a continue, it, it, it was a living tradition in its day? In other words, Greek Stoicism and Roman Stoicism certainly um, there's a there's a change uh, over time in the development of Stoic thinking and Stoic principles and practices. And as of course in the modern day, um, people almost take a shopping cart approach to all sorts of disciplines, whether it's Buddhism, well, Stoicism. I, I don't. Uh, I'm not opposed to that. I'm just not interested in it personally, right. uh, because I think I acquired, not only from my Midwestern upbringing and the 
rather gripping case of polio I had in 1952, uh, a lot of common sense that is, quote, stoic, unquote. Uh, but that's not enough, it seems to me, to call yourself a stoic. Uh, why not just call yourself a Buddhist or call yourself, um, you know, um, a stoic in, a, in the dictionary sense that is, or something. Uh, and for a professional philosopher, I guess, that's got to mean something more than just, you know, the Chinese menu thing. Right. Where you choose a little of this and choose a little of that. Or what I used to call being a fragmentist, right? Well, this is one of the reasons why I like your book so much and I like um, Donald's uh, as well. Mm -hmm. And even though I appreciate, and I've, I, um, I read Ryan's Obstacle is the Way as, as I was, I, I had a childhood interest in stoicism from, from my experience as a Latin student in seventh grade through my senior year of high school. And then um, my Latin teacher actually gave me his copy of, of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Uh -huh. That was like the beginning of my falling in love with Stoic philosophy. Um, I became kind of a lapsed Stoic after I graduated from college and I was making my way through the world and making a living. But uh, when I was approaching my 50th birthday, I remember that Marcus had a lot to, to say about um, contemplating your mortality and, um, you know, the impending end of your existence on earth. And I went back to it. And at that same time, I read Ryan's book and it was a, a nice, like easy entryway. But when I wanted more beef, I, I, I dove into Donald's book and your book. And that's, it was through understanding some of the more difficult concepts like you know, what is, what is nature? What is yeah. the logos and what is this, um, you know, stoic providence and determinism mm -hmm. and so forth. And when I read what you all had to say, I was able to say this all makes sense. And for the first time ever, I was able to declare myself something. I've never been even able to declare myself a member of my alma mater, <laughs> but yeah. somehow, um, and I and I really have never claimed my um, Catholic upbringing. But I suddenly had no problem um, announcing to my friends and family and neighbors that I'm that, that I'm a Stoic. Um, and part of that is uh, William Irvine talks about being a stealth Stoic. Like, don't let people know; they'll think you're crazy. Um, but I feel like Stoicism has so much to offer modern uh, the, today, people today for thriving in a very kind of tough, chaotic time. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it is, it, it's, it, it's attuned to a mindset that we have here in the West in a way that Buddhism, which has some similar uh, goals and some similar practices, is... I just never was able to, even though I appreciate and have read the text, I was never really able to grab onto Buddhist meditation and, and um, practices. Um, can we can we talk a little bit about the, the goal versus the target that you mentioned? Yeah, and I think actually this comes in contact with um, with your interest in creativity. Uh, exactly. The uh, the distinction between the goal and the target, I mean, they 
ancient Stoics used the metaphor of an archer, right? The goal is to hit the target, but that isn't where you have to aim often, right? Uh, you have to aim at a kind of virtual target too. So it's the same with virtue, really. You, you have to, or, or if you think about it, uh, what uh, Inwood points out is most of the things that we do have only some probability distribution of success. Uh, doctors, for instance, practice, do what they call best practices. They know they're going to fail a certain amount of time, right? That doesn't mean they stop doing medicine and doing best practices. It strikes me that for artists, for creative people of various kinds, and especially for maybe the performing arts, this can require special kinds of discipline because, uh, well, think about for performers, it seems that your success versus your failure might have something to do with the immediate impact you have on audiences. I think about actors in a theater versus actors in movies. Uh, and so you're really tempted to go after that, to chase uh, whether you're performing to big, you know, big venues and everybody's going crazy and therefore can't hear the music. Uh, or not. And so I think the Stoics would would have some good advice for that. They all they also have good advice and common sense for the difficulties of creating, right? And how often you have to fail in order to perfect your skill your skills and produce something mm -hmm. and how unexpected it can be. Um, so there's a lot in the practical part of Stoicism that is connected to creativity. Yeah, it's interesting. Miles Davis, I think, said, if you're not making mistakes, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, we talk about the Archer metaphor a lot um, in the group and, and on my site because for, uh, and what you mentioned about the dichotomy of control and it helped me resolve my problems with um, mm -hmm. determinism. It's, you know, you recognition of what is and what is not within your control is the first step, but you also have to remember that what is not within your control may be within your influence. And so as creative people or artistic people, you have to apply yourself to developing your craft, assembling your tools, keeping them, um, you know, polished and up to date, practicing your skills, mm -hmm maintaining your your mind and your health and um you can't ultimately know uh what the results may be whatever mm -hmm. if if you're to carry the archer metaphor further if your aim is to hit the target mm -hmm. um you don't control whether the wind takes your arrow off 
off target or if somebody walks in front of it or if somebody knocks a target over. So you can only do uh, apply your best efforts and do your best in the moment that you draw back the arrow and release it. And you have to be content that with, with that, that you've done the preparation that you've, that you've put forth your best effort and that whatever results mm -hmm. will provide a lesson that will give you tool or, or give you something to uh, help you iterate and develop your craft and try again another time. Um, what is the, uh, the difference between making the perfect shot and making the shot perfectly? <laughs> Very good. And so the best you, what's in your control is maybe making the shot perfectly. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. excellent. Well, we are we are approaching the half hour mark, and these broadcasts mm -hmm. are meant to be introductions um, to the the leading Stoke advocates of the day. And um, I am so thrilled and pleased to to be able to meet you, Larry. I, I'm a great fan of your work. I cannot wait. I will pre-order the, the the revised yeah. edition as soon as I can find that on Amazon. Um, People may very well um, wish to connect with you outside of this uh, Facebook group and outside of this broadcast. Where would you like people to connect with you online? Um, well, you can go to my website, I guess, and send me a message there, or, or you can just uh, send me a – my website is um, bookwork.net. Book work or worm? Work. Book work. B O O K W O R K dot net. Dot net. I'll make sure that that's available. Well, there's uh, a contact uh, uh, function on that. And you can write me a short message there and then we can talk. Well, before I let you go, uh, or before we leave the broadcast, Larry, and we talk offline uh, for just a minute, I want to, I want to, express my deep appreciation, not just for being on, on this broadcast, but for all of the great work that you did. And I really do feel like your book um, kind of launched this resurgence in interest in Stoicism. And it is making a huge impact on so many people uh, just to helping make the world a better place uh, and helping people experience more of flourishing and less anxiety and in, in well, modern um, living that's very gracious of you very nice well it's 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 heartfelt and deeply appreciated it's probably false no. <laughs> well i appreciate the self-deprecation um right. being a practitioner myself um so thank you so much uh larry for being here with us thanks so much for tuning in please go to itunes and listen to the broadcast there on the meet the modern soaks podcast Give it a five-star review. Help us spread the stoic goodness. And we'll look forward to seeing you all next time. Did you enjoy this episode of Meet the Modern Stoics? Then help me spread the stoic goodness and leave a five-star review on iTunes. Tell a friend about the podcast or email me at scott at thestoicguitars.com. Tell me what you think or who I should have on next. It's always great to hear from you. Remember, you can access all of the video versions of these interviews at thestoicguitarist.com. And while you're there, grab the free resource guide and checklist on how to become a bulletproof creative and a thriving artist in any endeavor or enterprise. Thanks for tuning in and for your support and participation. See you next time, fate permitting.